you had a view of our planet from space, what would you notice if you looked at it long enough? Maybe the regularity of certain patterns? Snow would probably be pretty easy to spot. Maybe certain weather regularities? Hurricanes and typhoons have pretty distinguishable features. What about, though, the past 200 cycles around the sun? Would they stand out more than nearly any other period? Thank you for finding this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. If you were an alien, and let's just say, every once in a while, a specific part of your alien bureaucracy would point a telescope over at a distant star system for a look-see. If their Department of Interstellar Intelligence was looking over at our system, they'd probably have quite a lot of interest in our planet right now. It wasn't until talking with my guests that I thought about looking at our moment from that perspective. Looking at the Earth from above, as if you're an alien, it's easy to see that the chemistry of our atmosphere is changing rapidly. What's causing that is a multitude of factors that are contributed to in wildly different ways depending on the region. Fossil fuels, deforestation, and concrete are some of the factors that get brought up during this interview. My guest today spends his time looking at the Earth from above, using satellite imagery to map the changes on the Earth. My guest today is Dr. Heiko Balzer, Professor of Geography at the University of Leicester. We were able to talk about quite a lot, and some of the highlights are him shedding some light on forest fires in Siberia, which happens to have the largest contingent forest in the world, the general state of deforestation in the world, along with what are carbon sinks and why we need them. Dr. Balzer provides us a glimpse into his work where he tries to bring more awareness to the changes in the time in which we live. For maybe, if we know more, more of the change will be for the good. Drums, and then we'll begin. And then if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself really quick so I have it. Yes, sure. I'm Heiko Belster and I'm a professor of physical geography at the University of Leicester in the UK. I'm also a member of the National Center for Earth Observation. Excellent. And uh, I wanted to uh, ask, so I've, I've been asking people this as kind of like a, just a way to get the conversation started is completely out there is, uh, what do you like to do that makes you happy? What I like to do to make me happy is um, actually uh, go to karate classes. So I learn Japanese traditional karate. Um, I'm actually a black belt since last year. And so I really Congrats. enjoy doing new katas, you know, and learning new forms. That's excellent. I, uh, I've fallen off my martial arts study, but that is one thing that has always brought me a lot of joy. It's very clarity bringing. Mm-hmm. That's, that's excellent. Um, so I, I was looking through a lot of your work. So I found you from the Anthropocene Research Group, which your university has, um, which is really quite fascinating. There's a lot of great uh, information that you all have. Um, and so the first question I kind of want to do to frame this, and I would like to kind of just have a conversation kind of going from there is, um, what is the Anthropocene? And is it, is it something that we're currently in? Yeah. 
So the Anthropocene describes the new geological epoch, and um, this has been discussed in the international scientific community for quite a while. It was controversial to begin with, but now I think it is a largely established term. Um, I think the scientific consensus is now that we can measure that people have an impact on the planet. And so that defines what the Anthropocene is. It's a geological epoch in which we can measure that the atmosphere of the Earth has changed because of human activity. And that is mainly fossil fuel burning, cement production, and tropical deforestation, releasing carbon dioxide, greenhouse gases, to the atmosphere. That, together with air pollution, actually leaves a measurable impact on the Earth's atmosphere. And that would be visible from space. So if you imagine if we were aliens looking down on Earth over the last 500 years, we could actually see a change about 150 years ago, slowly starting, where the atmospheric chemistry of our planet begins to change in a measurable way. So I always think of that as a concept, what the Anthropocene is. It's visibly changing the planet to what aliens might view us as, you know. And I think, I find that fascinating, that actually we are sending a signal out to alien civilizations potentially, um, that there is something living on the surface of this planet that is changing the chemistry of the planet. That's a a very novel and simple way of putting it that I think is great. It kind of throughouts the uh, controversy of it too, right? Because it's, if, it's, if it's obvious from somebody gazing from any, any distance away from our immediate uh, surface, it's probably happening. Um, mm. So I, I, I want to follow up with a question on that, but I, I want to first ask why was it originally controversial and why has it started becoming more of a recognized... Uh, term or, or geogra uh, geographic uh, epoch, as you said? Yeah, I think it was controversial to begin with because it's quite a new epoch. When you think about it, it's only about 150 years old or so, you know. And if you think about the Holocene, the more recent geological epochs, that is 11,700 years ago, roughly, that that started. And that was defined by the end of the last ice age. So we're talking a much longer time period. And I think in geological circles, there was a bit of a debate going on, is 150 years actually long enough to warrant a new geological epoch or not? You know, is it just a blip in the geological record or is it actually the start of a new epoch in the sense of a longer time period of substantial change? That makes sense. But would you, but, uh, what, I guess the, what's made that shift more accepted? Is it just the fact that it's uh, it's very obvious that in the past 150 years, there's been a drastic shift. Like you can, uh, you know, obviously uh, species uh, going ex uh, extinct is one of them. Um, and just the general makeup of the atmosphere is another. Is that kind of what's the, the, the shift? And, and I kind of want to just plug the great acceleration in here as well as a concept. Yeah, it's, well, it's become more obvious in a way. Um, it's also become less controversial. Um, as climate change, in principle, got more accepted by the scientific community. And now there is global consensus in the scientific community, really, with very few, you know, very few exceptions. Um, but the global consensus is that climate is changing and that's not controversial anymore. We can measure it. You know, if you take the temperature of a person, it's not controversial whether you have a fever or not. And I think it's a bit like that with the planet. You can measure that it's getting warmer. And <clears throat> similarly, um, the debate around is this human made or not is somewhat over, you know, because actually we have measured this and we have attributed it beyond reasonable doubt that people are contributing to climate change. Of course, we are not the only cause of climate change, but we are leaving a measurable signal. 
So we are changing the climate. Um, we're not the only factor. I think that would be arrogant to say we are the only factor on Earth changing the climate, but we are contributing measurably towards climate change. So as that became more accepted, I think the concept of, of the Anthropocene became more accepted. Um, <clears throat> I think the other thing to bear in mind is actually that we have a lot more measurement technology at our disposal, especially satellite remote sensing. It has become quite prevalent in the last decades. So as the satellite data records got longer, we're talking now about decades of data on the atmospheric chemistry of the planet, uh, we actually can demonstrate now from satellite data as well as from buoy data in the oceans, from atmospheric stations, meteorological stations, from the monitoring station in the Mauna Loa Observatory, for example, that measures greenhouse gases, the longest record of um, atmospheric greenhouse gas concentrations. There is really no controversy anymore that the atmosphere is changing and greenhouse gases are changing. So I think we have left that debate behind and people have accepted that the atmospheric chemistry of the planet has changed and is continuing to change and is unlikely to stop changing in the near future. So I think we have actually altered the planet in a measurable way and it's unlikely to be reversible completely. Well, that's a sobering way to end that. <laughs> but uh, um, that, that, that makes sense. It's, it's kind of science coming to fruition on itself almost that the, the more tools that there are to measure and the longer that those tools have been in place and kind of economies of scale along with it, uh, the easier this this case has been made that we're uh, drastically changing the planet. And I think the satellite uh, imagery and kind of going back to your your thought about aliens is a, a great way of looking at it, right? Once we're kind of able to get a, a view from above and in the heavens, so to speak, uh, we can start seeing the, the market changed uh, more, more, more uh, flatly. Um, so the other thing I want to go back to is that you said that most of the the change in the, the chemistry of the atmosphere is coming from fossil fuels, concrete, and uh, deforestation. I think you said tropical forest deforestation. Is Are those in order of the the effects of it or the, the drivers? Is the driver fossil fuel, then concrete, then deforestation? Yeah, so the main human drivers of climate change are in that order. So fossil fuel burning is the primary driver. Um, cement production or deforestation I'm not so sure we can rank them particularly. I think deforestation is becoming a very significant driver. I think that maybe the second or third most important factor. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. But um, what is clear that tropical deforestation on a global scale actually now is contributing to changes in the carbon cycle in a measurable way. Um, it's not nearly as important as fossil fuel burning though. So oil and gas burning. Um, is still the main cause of um, anthropogenic or human-made climate change. And uh, I know we're probably at the fringes of, of what your research is, but is the fossil fuel production mostly from transportation or energy production, or is it from like a, a one industry, or is it just kind of a, a numerous across the board kind of driver globally? Hmm. Well, it comes from multiple different sources. If you imagine where we are using energy, um, it broadly follows that, you know, because actually we're using energy in industrial production processes as well as in our homes. Mm. We're using it in our cars. We're using it for transport in airplanes, for shipping, for transporting goods and services. So all these things take energy and we largely rely on fossil fuel energy to date. Um, there are renewables and there is nuclear energy that is being used. 
I don't count nuclear energy as renewable because the uranium we're using in nuclear power plants is not renewable. It mm -hmm. comes out of mines. Um, and even though it lasts a very long time, um, it is not really recyclable in any way and it leaves behind nuclear waste. We don't know quite what to do with it. However, when we think about what to do about climate change, um, then I think we need to think more about renewable energy. And by that, I mean things like wind power, solar power, biomass recycling, you know, waste products from the timber production process, for example, um, and how we can use that as well as saving energy and reducing the demand for energy by being more energy efficient. Yeah, I think that's great tips. And, and also kind of points at the fact that I, at least I some of the thoughts that I always have when thinking about the challenges ahead is, you know, when we say that we're a fossil fuel based economy, what that really means is everything you touch and everything you do is impacted by fossil fuels, which means is impacting the, the uh, atmosphere and, and in, in return kind of feeding this anthropogenic cycle, um, which is quite large. Um, and, and also, I just wanted to point this out there to anyone who's maybe listening is that, you know, concrete is a huge driver of fossil of, of carbon emissions. And it's something that I think isn't quite thought about. And, and also, you know, industrialized com uh, countries as they're industrializing and kind of following the arc that the Western, uh, Western world has, which is, you know, creating fossil fuels for energy, you know, coal uh, power plants or laying a lot of concrete for these concrete jungles that we live in. Um, all of that is a driver towards this type of change. And so my question on, on some of the tropical deforestation that you said is happening globally, is that increasing? Like the deforestation in the past, let's just say 20 years and, you know, just this millennia, is that, an, is there an increase in that? Mm -hmm. um, well, but there are policies now to try and reduce global deforestation. Um, so, since the Paris Agreement was put in force um, in 2015, which of, of course is on a voluntary basis, so nations have subscribed to it and made pledges how to try and stop climate change. Um, but part of that is a policy to reduce international deforestation, especially in low and middle income countries, where that is often the only source of income for many people. And the way this works is basically by making payments to low and middle income countries as a reward for protecting their forest areas. So if you think about a tropical country with lots of forests, but not much industry, the incentive would normally be under normal economic conditions to cut down the forests and build factories and do agriculture and raise cattle and produce soybeans and things like this. But with the rewards for reducing deforestation, it is hoped at least that the deforestation rates would go down. Now, that is regionally very, very different in different parts of the world. So there are some hotspots of deforestation where the deforestation is accelerating again. Um, there's been a lot of debate around Brazil recently <clears throat> since the last election with the reversal of many of the policies for protecting the Amazon rainforest. There's a real threat that we're losing large parts of the Amazon rainforest with unknown consequences really for the microclimate. By microclimate, I mean the climate across the South American continent. <clears throat> um, because the rainforest in the Amazon also is very important for stabilizing the local climate. Um, it releases water vapor to the atmosphere and that then leads to more rainfall mm -hmm. and that keeps the forest going. So the more of the forest is lost actually, the less of the new rainfall and cloud formation can actually happen. Mm -hmm. And that could actually lead to a dieback mechanism where if you cut down enough of the trees, the forest cannot reestablish itself eventually because it becomes too dry. Um, so other parts of the world are a bit more um, 
better policed, if you like, or where people make more of an effort to try and uh, protect the forest areas. Um, <clears throat> Brazil used to be quite good until recently, um, but now I think there's a bit of a question mark around what the future will bring. Um, <clears throat> there's also a big debate going on about actually externalizing some of the deforestation. So um, it is possible, of course, that a country might preserve its own forest resources and get the payments to reduce deforestation, but then import lots of illegally sourced timber from the neighbor. Mm -hmm. And there need to be mechanisms and, and checks to make sure that doesn't happen because that would defeat the object, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. And I, I'm, I might be getting the countries long, wrong, but I believe that that was the exact case in Thailand and Laos, was it? Mm -hmm. Where Thailand put uh, strict protections on protecting their forests and then Laos uh, had a, a, a huge string of both legal and illegal logging. I, I could be getting the countries wrong. I'm sure you're more educated on that yeah. than I am. But I'm not so sure about the, the, the countries where that happened, but it was in Southeast Asia, I seem to remember, where, where that has happened in the past and it got out into the public. So we need to be very careful about setting incentives, economic and political incentives. Yeah, um, this is more of just an aside and, and a personal musing um, of mine, but I, it's almost... I, I almost feel like the best way, and this is an incredible move for any government or policy to make, is to create a culture in which people value that resource as opposed to creating an economic incentive or decentive for such a resource to exist. Because um, I, I think it's Paul Krugman. I, I, always, I, I have to cite this again, but there's an economist that said uh, there's no solutions, only trade-offs. And I think that that's really mm -hmm. true. And I think when it comes to economic trade-offs, I think kind of the peril of our time being the fact that we have uh, orders of magnitude, more problems across orders of magnitude, more uh, parts of our li lives is the fact that, you know, economies in a global scale that this infrastructure has built in this great globalist mindset of which we can talk to each other across different continents, which is quite amazing. Um, also brings some, some tenuous problems of which, especially of which these type of solutions seem to only create more. Right. Mm. Um, that's that's really that is true so i think um, there are very interesting concepts out there like um, ecosystem services for example uh, i'm really a fan of ecosystem services as an approach even though mm. that is also being debated in the research community some people are quite critical about it and others really like it personally i think it is a helpful tool to actually make sure that people understand all the value of the different ecosystem services that the forest for example provides to people when you think about an area of tropical rainforest, you know, one hectare of tropical rainforest protects the climate, captures water from the atmosphere, stabilizes the local climate, provides biodiversity, probably hosts some medicinal plants we don't even know exist and that have never been mapped, you know, and actually provides other services like local fuel, wood collection, perhaps for local communities. They might go and collect honey from wild bees, you know, and all these different things we don't know about necessarily. If you add all these things up, I think, then it becomes economically really not interesting to cut down the forest because the value of all the services it provides for everybody far outweigh the benefit of cutting it down. Yes, and, and I think that that, so I, uh, I, I'm no like fan or critic of capitalism at all. I, I think it, capitalism is, is a tool and it is what it is, but I think what as a tool, it, it markets have a hard time pricing in what they can't see. And I think exactly what you just said is a great point. Like there could be medicines there. There could be, you know, food sources that, you know, there, there could be molecules that are novel that, you know, in some combination have some great effect to us in some means. And it doesn't necessarily need to be medicinal. It could be 
you know, for, for building or anything. And the things I always cite about the Amazon that fascinate me is all modern uh, anesthesia medicine comes from a hunting dart that is, it was the indigenous peoples of the Amazon of, of which mm-hmm. they needed to find a solution to hunt monkeys because if they, you know, shot an arrow at a monkey, it would uh, wrap its tree or its uh, tail around a tree and then it wouldn't fall down to the can, you know, from the canopy. So they created this antiseptic that would paralyze the monkey and have it fall down. And that's one of their main sources of protein. And from that, we now have, you know, anesthesia medicine, which is amazing. Um, let alone, um, you know, the numerous amounts of agricultural uh, species that were domesticated in the Amazon. So, um, but biodiverse areas, I, I think, are are incredible treasures that I think we, to your point of, you know, ecological services that finding a way to to steward and, and hold on to is it's an, an X factor of benefit. Mm-hmm. And we may need those genetic resources at some point, especially if the climate mm-hmm. is changing. Because we will maybe need to change the types of crops we grow, you know, and when you think about it, we rely on a very small genetic diversity of the food we eat. You know, when you think about the farm animals we rely on, you think about the crop types we rely on, you know, wheat and barley and a couple of others. But genetically, it's a very narrow range of plants. And when you think about the changing climate and the threat that poses to the production of foodstuffs, there is an untapped potential in many of those tropical areas where we have undisturbed pristine forests, for example. There might be some wild plants there we can use for clever plant breeding programs, for example, to create more climate resilient crops in the future. So for all those reasons, I think it's worth protecting biodiversity. That's a, that's a really great point that I, I hadn't thought of before. Um, there's the, and also, like just as a, a, a thought along that, those lines is, you know, a lot of the way that our agricultural systems are set up really hasn't changed for several hundred years. We're very, you know, single crop uh, heavy, you know, where, you know, traditionally, like I I know farmers in the Andes, I have a particular penchant for South American indigenous cultures. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if they were a potato farmer, they may farm 200 different varieties of potatoes where, you know, Ireland during the potato famine was only, you know, mostly one variety. And, Mm -hmm. And I think an interesting thought that I hadn't had before, um, speaking you know right now is the fact that we're going to need a lot of different varieties and we're going to need to plug and play and kind of go along the scientific method of seeing what works uh given the fact of the pace of change that we're kind of experiencing and you know to call back the anthropocene yeah with the current pace of climate change there's already a lot of thought being put into this you know thinking about climate smart coffee production for example Mm -hmm. in africa where actually the regional temperature increase is almost getting to a critical threshold now where coffee cannot be grown anymore in some areas because it's too hot. You know, the coffee plants suffer from heat stress. So what can you do to mitigate that? You know, one possibility is actually to plant some shading trees and do an agroforestry type of approach where you provide a cooling effect by having an upper canopy of trees and then the coffee plantation underneath as is the case in parts of Latin America already and um, South America probably as well. Um, But another part of this is actually thinking about breeding some coffee varieties that are more resistant to heat and, you know, tolerate heat stress more easily. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. Um, It's always, you know, just to kind of throw this back out there as a thought, it's interesting how it's always the market commodities that tend to get this sorted out first. Um, But it's going to be interesting I mean, I just think agriculture in general is something that I think we take for granted, just like the yields that we get, the uh, availability that we get to, you know, to crop all over the world and kind of, and something 
along the lines of the Anthropocene that I find so fascinating is, yes, there is an atmospheric effect, but there's also the effect of just critical mass of having Homo sapiens over so much of the marble is now we're affecting the, the usage and yield of, of really all the land in, in such a drastic way. Um, mm. And that type of playing, and it's only going to get more drastic in the, in the coming years. Um, mm. So it, it, with your work in, in, you know, imagery and satellite imagery of, of forests and kind of, I know that you, um, uh, you want to come Copernicus award. Congratulations for some of your work uh, with uh, the, monitoring of of deforestation and, and things like that particularly i believe in, in siberia you. you were yeah siberia you were you were monitoring as well um do, are you seeing like um have we mitch have we reached any type of critical mass point um in which some of these tropical areas or even just forests in general are going to be harder to either let uh, I me mean, let me rephrase this question um, do you see it that it's, it should be an important marker along with perhaps finding more sustainable ways to base our economy off of vis-a-vis fossil fuels um, and, and probably concrete as well? Um, do you think it's also a point that we should be trying to grow our forests to be larger carbon sinks? Um, and is that something, once again, call back to the Paris Climate Accord, um, that you're seeing happen broadly? Um, because uh, not to make my question too pronounced, but... Um, one of the things that I have been noticing, um, and I was doing some uh, research a few months ago, was that how forest canopies in Europe have grown quite a bit. Um, but I'm curious as to if that's just market forces again, uh, making it you know to more tourism viable in those areas, um, or perhaps um, not even having uh, means of production to take that wood and mill it or to turn it into anything else. So that was a very long question, but mm-hmm. I'll pause. Yeah, <clears throat> well, I think forestry globally and forest conservation particularly has a role to play in the fight against climate change, definitely. Um, Even if it cannot be the main driver against climate change. So we need to think about other tools to stop climate change. Most notably, I think on the energy production side. So finding energy efficient ways of living um, and finding clean energy sources that we can rely on moving away from fossil fuels, particularly. On the forestry side, I think we need to remind ourselves that in Europe, we have a different history from many of the tropical countries, because actually, when you look back, we have already cut down our forests. You know, you look at countries like the United Kingdom, where we used to have almost continuous oak forest cover from one coast to the other, not long ago, you know, and all of that was cleared in the last couple of thousand years um, for building ships, for clearing the land for agriculture and for other purposes. And now, of course, we have hardly any forest left. We've got less than 10% forest cover in the UK. Um, So most of it is gone. Now, under that scenario, and especially now where we have enough food to eat and we can actually think about other things to do with the land, we don't actually have to fight for every inch of agricultural soil at the moment. Um, We can actually think about planting trees because we have the luxury of having land where we can put the trees. In the tropics in many countries, that is quite different. You know, they are living in a heavily forested place where they have pristine rainforests and they are struggling to find enough um, places where they can grow crops and grow food. So there I think the pressures are different. And therefore we need to think about actually how we can help low and middle income countries in particular to find a clean development pathway for their economies. That is a very tricky question because we cannot provide a good example in Europe, you know, because we have actually been one of the most heavy contributors to climate change and the problems we are in now. 
So <clears throat> we're not a shining example of climate-friendly economic development, but that's what low and middle income countries need at this point. You know, we need to think outside the box. You know, we need to think about innovative solutions, how we can help other countries avoid the mistakes we've made. Part of that, I think, includes planting trees where we live. That's, that's a great point. Uh, it's, it's, have you seen any examples? I mean, the, the, well, one thing I just want to hit upon is that's a really good point that a lot of these countries, you know, it's easy for us as we scroll Twitter to say like, oh, that's awful. They're burning the rainforest. Oh, that's awful that they're doing that. But in, in their, you know, in the, the sapiens that are living there, you know, it's a really, it's a real conundrum for them of we need, we need space to be able to grow more. So we import less so that our currency, you know, is able to be stayed more stable here, you know, and, and I would just as a aside, you know, you know, debt ratios between countries and all of this are all factors into them wanting to stabilize their own food production, you know, and, you know, my interview, my last conversation I had with, with Dr. Novi was, you know, talking about Norman Borlaug and, you know, some of the work that was done in order to make sure that we had a place, you know, to feed everybody. Um, but now it's almost that we're having a, you know, a, an issue finding land to be able to do that, which, which is interesting that you bring up kind of going back to Anthropocene of not just the uh, atmosphere, but also just space, raw space on the marble. Um, is, are there any countries that you're able to see that are doing a good job or a better job of kind of this mixed um, management of land of, of saying, you know, this area over here is important um, because like I said, I, I don't think there's solutions. I think there's trade-offs, right? Like people do need to eat. Um, and I'm kind of starting at my own personal thought journey. I'm starting to understand more that monoculture in certain intensive, heavily managed areas is incredibly yield high and potentially very necessary um, in order to offset in other areas. So I'm, I'm curious as to if there's any, any good examples as you just said of how, you know, perhaps Europe isn't one, but is there another? Yeah, I don't want to highlight any particular countries about this particular issue at the moment. Or but policies, I think, maybe. I think, generally speaking, when you think about the ecosystem services concept, you know, then food production is one ecosystem service that we use. We can use the land to provide food for us. Um, a different ecosystem service might be the climate mitigation, climate protection. So if we plant trees there, then they take up carbon from the atmosphere. That's good for the climate. Um, and th there might be trade-offs or synergies between those different ecosystem services. So having a forest somewhere where there wasn't a forest before is clearly beneficial for carbon capture and storage. It's also beneficial for biodiversity, but it may not be the best solution for food production. We can get more food if we had agriculture there. So if we look at whole landscapes, we need to find the right balance between forest and food production areas and everything else. And ideally, we need to find something that enhances biodiversity and stops the species extinction that we're in on this planet at the moment, at the same time as making a positive contribution to climate change rather than a negative one that enhances climate change. Yeah. So I can see the ecosystem services concept going in that direction, but I think it needs to mature a little bit to be translated into national policies more effectively. I, I, I think I understand that a little more clearly now. Uh, thank you for that. Um, and, and I think something else that you're that you've said is kind of sparking in me now, which is um, 
when making these type of trade-offs of what are we going to be doing with this, this land? How are we going to be managing it? It's both the microclimate of the immediate area and then the region and then, you know, the, the whole globe, uh, almost kind of looking at it from that lens. Cause, um, you know, chopping down this land for Savannah and, and grazing or cattle, cattle, uh, land or soya beans, like they're happening a lot in the, in the rainforest, you know, economically may be great for those individuals in that area. Um, but in that climate of that region, that might actually be reducing the rainfall to your point, which is actually probably going to make it more intensive irrigation and water stress, which, um, you know, water stress is going to be just a, a, the next 50 years is going to be defined. Uh, and at least I think it largely by, by water availability. So um, mm. these type of trade-offs need to be more, more made, I suppose. Um, are, are you seeing, I, I, here's my next question. Um, are you seeing, uh, the, the deforestation, um, I, I guess what's the mo- main mechanisms of deforestation? Is it just coming in and chopping logging or is it through burning areas? The drivers of deforestation are quite specific for particular countries and regions, depending mm-hmm. on the main pressures there. So it can start by selective logging, where people go in and harvest the higher value timber, take out individual trees. <clears throat> in many parts of Africa, charcoal production for local fuel is one of the main drivers, where people go in and they burn some of the trees, produce charcoal, which they can then sell on the roadside to other people who are passing by. Um, or using the local village for cooking. Um, so there is clearly some work that needs to be done and is being done, in fact, on helping people to switch to solar energy for cooking, for example, which is a very clean way of providing energy. Um, and in some other parts of the world, it's more linked to uh, timber industry. So there are big paper mill companies with big demands for timber products and wood products. Um, but there are some other places in the world where it's actually driven by um, farming and by land use change for agriculture. So think about soybean production, feeding livestock in the industrialized countries like in the US or in Europe. You know, we, we need to import loads of feed stuff um, from all over the planet, soybean in particular. And where does that come from? You know, it comes usually from areas that used to be in primary tropical rainforest some time ago. So land use change pressures sometimes are driven by global economic demands. And I think in some way we need to be careful what economic incentives we are sending out to the rest of the world from, from our countries, you know, because if, if we are saying, yes, let's import soybean from all over the world, we need to be actually aware where this is coming from and what we're doing to other countries by importing it from there. That's a, that's a great point. And, and I think it's, it's hard and, and thank you for helping paint this picture because I think it's starting to become clearer for me just kind of all the different, the web of differences, right? Like homo sapiens are so different culturally and ge- geographically. Like part of the reason why I love geography is is how set and setting, right? Like if I go back to my, my literary Shakespearean times, like set and setting is huge, right? Like where's the story start? How does it look like? Who are the characters? Um, and the physical features of a landscape and the culture that comes out of those features that from living there for a long enough period of time lends itself to these very interesting, you know, dimensions of problems for the same, macroly speaking, deforestation, right? But well, that actually means something different in this region of sub-Saharan Africa where, you know, they need charcoal, right? Or this region of Brazil where, you know, the country is incentivizing soya, soya farming and 
uh, cattle grazing um, for once again, for exporting. And, and now we have this global market and China kind of becoming more hungry, if you will, um, mm. all of these selective pressures, but you know, most of us as individual consumers tend to feel it as second order effects, right? Um, like mm. I like, you know, well, I don't really, I don't eat meat, but uh, you know, I, I like a hamburger, right? So I don't realize that the, the feed in order to, to have that cattle come to, to, to slaughter. And then the kind of all of the mechanisms that go into that is um, all to give me a very nice price on this, on this burger. Um, but that's actually being determined from a global market and, and all these interesting geographic mm. differences across the, the rock. Yeah, um, I don't eat meat myself. And I think one of the interesting aspects is that as a consumer, we don't pay for the climate change costs of the food we eat. So that is one thing worth thinking about, you know, because the food stuff we buy is not necessarily actually carrying the cost of the climate change because, you know, when you think about the humanitarian cost of climate change, the droughts, the famine, all of this, then actually it is worth thinking about that. Um, <clears throat> Because we don't think about it, we don't reflect about it, we don't see it. There's no label on the food that basically says, you know, this is how it's like. Um, and interestingly, there is consumer pressure building up now. Um, so many, many consumers are becoming interested in these issues. And so what is happening now is that there is a bit of consumer power building up worldwide, where people are going to supermarkets and writing to supermarket chains asking, well, actually, where do you get your burgers from? Am I cutting down tropical rainforest if I buy your burgers? <laughs> you know, can I be confident this is not happening? And as a consequence of this, actually, many of the supermarkets are becoming interested in monitoring their supply chains. Where does our stuff come from? You know, can we actually ensure that farmers don't cut down tropical trees? So this will be a thing of the future, I think. There'll be more and more of this um, certification going on where consumers want to be reassured that what they're buying is climate friendly. Yeah. I, and I hope that that, that picks up quick. You know, I, I hope the means of social media and kind of the zeitgeist of everyone having a voice puts that pressure fast because something that um, in my uh, darker moments tend to become quite overwhelming is the, the, the thing that you said right there, which is we don't pay the price for the, the degradation of the environment, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, both the company taking, you know, Let's just take a very specific example of both the company taking. Uh, let's just okay. One second, I'll give you. I'll give you a more specific fracking in the United States, right? Frack. United States has become the largest oil producer in the world, largely because of fracking technology, um, and that technology is very intensive to the land. It leaves a very big mark to the land, um, and that cost isn't being felt by the individuals that are doing it. Um, there are laws for them if they leave a well to plug it up. They're not doing that. We've seen evidence of that, um, especially with the latest hurricanes. We can see more and more evidence of that. Um, and once you do then burn that into either you know, uh, power plants or in my Subaru, um, none of, no one is paying the cost of that putting that carbon into the air. Um, and that is having a detrimental effect. It could be you know, the detrimental effect of having um, heavy, heavy toxins or metals into the environment from the refining or the actual burning of, you know, diesel even, or, um, or, uh, another globalist example would be shipping, you know, international shipping is a huge driver of, um, heavy pollutants getting into the atmosphere. Um, and that isn't being felt. Uh, it's definitely not being felt in, in my, uh, you know, 99 cents, uh, whatever it may be I'm buying off of Amazon. Right. Um, and just kind of the, the logistical web of everything from food, to most of our daily life really isn't getting felt in that economic way. And you, you can see that by 
the free market giving us cheaper and cheaper goods. Um, mm -hmm. and that is true, yeah. So the market forces are not always helpful for climate policies. And I think we need to change the way our economy functions to make sure that actually we pay the price of climate change damage that we cause. Um, I sort of contributed some of the evidence for the Stern review at the time here in the UK. This was a high-level policy review. Hmm. And that looked at the economic costs of climate change worldwide and basically came to the conclusion that it's actually economically wise to act now on climate change and not delay it too much. That was in 2006, I think. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> the, the message hasn't changed. You know, the, the sooner we react on this, the cheaper it will be in the long term, because actually the economy is going to suffer from the consequences of climate change eventually. And by acting now, we are actually making our lives a lot easier in the future. Because the climate change effects that we are seeing now, think about the catastrophic fires, you know, think about Australia burning earlier in the year, and the Siberian forest fires, Californian forest fires. You hear all these stories about catastrophic climate events from all over the world. And it is actually known from the insurance industry, which is one of the most reliable sources of um, figures on the economic damage from natural disasters, that the cost of these is on the increase worldwide. So it is actually beneficial to try and curb our greenhouse gas emissions now and leave it in the ground. You know, don't get all the fossil fuels out that we can. Fracking technology is a prime example. Even if we can get the stuff out and burn it, you know, we shouldn't. For the reason of protecting the climate, we should think about other energy sources. That's my view and the view of many climate scientists around the world. Um, so that's perhaps a message to take away, you know, to think about that. Um, well, what do we want to rely on as our energy sources for the future? Yeah. It's not it's, going to be fossil. I would hope not. Right? <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I think we've all become quite accustomed to being able to, uh, like, I'm very grateful I can speak with you across the world right now. Right, like I, I don't mm -hmm. think we want to change our, our lifestyle, but I think the means of supporting our lifestyle is 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 necessary to change. Um, and I think once again to kind of call back to something we were saying earlier is um, pricing in something you don't know is a lot harder than pricing in something you do know. Um, and now we're mm -hmm. starting, and once maybe even once again to your satellite imagery uh, comment in the beginning of this is that now we're starting to get more data to support the fact that, like nope, it's actually going to be quite cheaper if we, we invest in sustainability now than it is there. Um, I, I don't know this for certain, but I would fancy that uh, in the UK, it might even be a little bit more transparent as to the health effects just because of uh, the health system that is there versus the United States where we're mostly private or employer-based. Um, uh, where most, you know, the, the health effects from, from climate change is, is starting to become uh, quite apparent, especially in different geographic zones, um, especially in some areas it's, it's, quite worse than others because of, you know, maybe like Los Angeles is a good example of being in a basin where, you know, the emissions from, uh, from cars or even the brake dust actually is a, is a big problem with lungs. Um, and, and kind of the, the disparity of that is starting to become more and more and more, which, um, something I, I kind of think a lot about as far as with the point we're at in, in, uh, our time is kind of like a, a teeter totter, right? like it's a turbulent teeter-totter, right? Like certain areas are going to not be affected as much. Certain social economic strata, strata aren't going to be affected as much, but either way, it's very turbulent for everybody. Um, mm. 
that is definitely true. And that has also come to the fore as part of the COVID-19 situation worldwide, where different parts of the world are in different stages of lockdown. It seems continuously for now, at least, until we've got this under control. And as part of this, I think it's fair to say that different parts of the population suffer from this in different ways, you know, because actually people who have a garden are better off than people who don't have a garden and cannot go out under those conditions, for example. Mm. And we need to be thinking about the social economic inequalities as well and how exposed people are um, to the consequences of these measures against the virus, you know, because the consequences are quite different depending how wealthy you are and where you live. How easy it is to get food, you know, how far is it to the next shop if you have to walk to the shop. Um, and similarly, we need to think about how we can feed our cities in the future. More than half of the world's population now lives in cities. So the other half of the population needs to produce the food for everybody. How does that get there? You know, where do we get the food from? Um, and how can we do this in a more energy efficient way? We have come to a world in, in a sense, we are living in a world where the cities are a bit disconnected from rural areas. And people who live in cities don't always think about where the food comes from that they buy. And I think that lack of connection somehow means also people don't think necessarily so much about what they buy and where they buy it from. So we need to move beyond that. And I think there's a bit of an awareness raising that needs to happen to get climate change under control. Um, that awareness raising needs to connect people or reconnect people with nature. You know, we've got to think about the fields, the forests, the pastures where our food comes from and build up a connection to that again. That's great. Um, I, I, I really appreciate that sentiment because if we kind of, again, like going back to awareness, if like I truly believe, and this is part of the reason why I'm spending so much time in, in the beginning of this, this series talking about the Anthropocene is because I truly believe if individuals were aware of just kind of all of the interconnected problems that are causing this, you know, epoch of time, um, I think things will change, right? And, and I think to that point, um, this may sound like cheesy, but I think being more connected to the soil itself and what, you know, what am I eating and where did it come from and how did it get to me? Um, and more of an understanding of that because the, the, once again, and this is my own personal musing, I think Homo sapiens um, as part of the, the great apes are incredibly adorned to comfort. We like comfort and we like ease. Um, and evolutionarily, we probably got here because of that, right? Like yeah, being enjoying comfort is going to make us a lot fight a lot harder to get that. Um, and we all enjoy like going to a grocery store and being able to get a packaged meal. And that's, you know, there is some comfort that comes from that. There's an ease. Um, I can now spend more time maybe with my family or spend some more time trying to make a, a better economic living for myself or any, any strata of anything. Maybe I can now go to karate class because I had a, a box meal, um, whatever yeah. it may be. But the number of um, something, something my wife actually brought up to me uh, as a mode of thinking is all of the hands that it took to get here right? Like how many hands and, and something I would layer on top of that is how much, how many machines and energy to get to that point, right? So to get this boxed meal that I just had, well, how did they get the dyes to make that, to put on that box, to make that, that flashy coloring that then attracted my eyes to get here? Mm -hmm. You know, how did the, they build the metal that the, the stand is now on, that is the box is sitting on? Where did the, the wheat come from? If you look at the list of ingredients on a lot of these box meals, it's going to be quite long and, and extensive, especially here in the States where we have uh, less than forthright regulation of our food industry. Um, 
you know, all of those chemicals and, and states that get in there, like that is, that is an awful lot of work that I took in that once we pointed to before, isn't economically priced into the environmental degradation of it. Um, and then once again, where is it, where did it come from and how did it get to me? Um, and that's, it's a, it's a tough thing to kind of wrap your head around because of a lot of what I just said, it is incredibly intertwined. You know, it potentially could be involving multiple different countries, most likely is, right? Like the cardboard that this is put in the States to make this packaging and the dyes probably didn't come from here, um, may not even been manufactured here. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, really the kind of coming together of the world under globalization and the, the, the amazing logistics that it has now brought has now kind of also brought with it the conundrum of which it is so complicated. It is hard for most individuals to understand. That is definitely true. And it's almost impossible to know exactly where your products are coming from sometimes. Um, Even if it says produced in the United Kingdom, that maybe it's produced in the United Kingdom, but the food stuff has been imported from elsewhere, you know, so sometimes um, there's a bit of a nuance. You have to think about actually where the stuff comes from before, you know, not just where it's packaged. Um, And similarly, we need to think about where we can get stuff from. Um, I think a really interesting initiative in the UK, for example, is the Sustainable Cities, Sustainable Towns Initiative, mm-hmm. where people are selling locally produced food. So um, in our little town where I live, you know, we have a local initiative like this, and you can order stuff online on a website that people grow in their greenhouses and local farmers grow on their farms. Um, you can buy that stuff in a farm shop somewhere, or you can get it delivered to your house for a little extra. And, you know, the food miles are something like five or 10 miles away. Now, that's great. You know, you don't have to get it from elsewhere. Um, Some of the stuff is really tasty. You know, you get fresh salads. It's much, much fresher. Fresh lettuce from a local farm is much fresher than if you get it from another country. So there's a gain to be made in quality as well. But I think it's fortunate to have those structures in place. Yeah, so that's those great. are things that will come more and more, I think. You know, we, we actually have to reconnect with locally produced food. Yeah, there's um, a thought that I've, I've kind of, I haven't brought it up before, but I, I think the solution to globalization is atomization. And what I mean by that is exactly what you just said. Like if we can somehow atomize everything, like we've done, like if I was to look at the, perhaps an easy analogy, this might be not that easy, but perhaps an easier analogy to understand this interconnectivity is like neural pathways, right? Um, so mm-hmm. like habits, like you build a habit, like every day, um, a habit I'm trying to break is I, I drink coffee every day, right? And the more I do that every morning, the more that my brain is going to have an easy path to expect the fact that I'm just going to keep getting coffee every morning, right? Um, Similar way, we have these amazingly large trade routes um, and means of business and connecting cultures through that business. Um, And it's made us very easy to, once again, sapiens being comfort obsessed, uh, makes it easy for us to get up and reach for our whatever it may be, importing, you know, food from over here or uh, getting tomatoes from over there. But the thing we have to try to break is being more aware and closer to everything that we get and some type of, Mm. instead of having a macro kind of large scale globalized hub, right? Hub and spoke uh, mechanism, more of an atomized one where it's much smaller, Mm. uh, smaller links and and kind of connecting them together. Um, I hadn't heard about that in the UK. That's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, Yes, I mean, another thing is, of course, decentralized energy production can also be helping towards that. We've got solar panels on our roof, you know, and they don't produce enough energy for the whole house, but they produce about half of what we use. And I think that's a good start. 
Um, so the decentralized energy supply actually is also a way to make it more energy efficient and more environmentally friendly because you put the energy supply on your roof, you know, and it stays there and you have your free electricity. Right. And, and once again, going back to trade-offs, half is better than none, right? Yeah, exactly. If you yeah. imagine we could cut down the energy, energy consumption worldwide by half, you know, that would be a good start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, we would be able to reach the, the climate accord early, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That would be great. Um, what, uh, and this, this has all been fascinating. Thank you. Uh, what, uh, carbon sinks. I had, I had a question about carbon sinks. I, I want to kind of go a couple more places here, but um, where, what are carbon sinks? And, and where are kind of the large carbon sinks? Is it, is it a callback mm -hmm. to what we were saying before with the tropical rainforests? Um, and if it is, why is tropical rainforests a better carbon sink than, you know, perhaps the oak forests, you know, down the street from me here in California? Mm. So carbon sink is a concept that refers to areas that take carbon out of the atmosphere. So they help mitigate climate change and make climate change less extreme. Um, so anything that takes up carbon out of the atmosphere is a carbon sink, much like all emissions to the atmosphere are a carbon source. So where do we find carbon sinks? Um, the important carbon sinks are the tropical rainforests, and that's partly driven by the size of them. When you look at a map of the world, you know, then the tropical rainforests are just covering a massive, massive area. And also because of the climate there, the trees take up a lot of carbon from the atmosphere. Even mature tropical forest can still take up carbon from the atmosphere. And through the leaf fall, for example, that gets into the soil and builds up a carbon store in the soil. So we have the concept in research about the turnover time of carbon. So the turnover time is how long does it take for, for a molecule of carbon that is taken out of the air to be released back into the air. And that turnover time is a very, very long time in tropical forests. Because you can imagine when the carbon gets into the soil, it stays there for thousands of years. So it is a long-term carbon store. It locks it away for a very long time. When you think about agricultural fields, they have a shorter turnover time because you grow a new crop every year or in some parts of the world, you have several crops a year. And therefore the turnaround time is faster. Um, so that's an important concept to bear in mind about carbon sinks. We want long-term carbon sinks where the carbon stays there for the foreseeable future, if not forever. There are other carbon sinks. The oceans are taking up carbon from the atmosphere um, through the photosynthesis of um, microorganisms like plankton and algae that are living in the water. When they naturally die, they sink to the floor of the ocean and then the carbon is stored there on geological timescales for very long timescales, thousands of years. So that is another important carbon sink. Um, and there are, of course, now debates around um, carbon capture and storage, whether we can actually artificially extract carbon from the atmosphere and store it in disused oil wells or some other geological structures we can find. So that's the concept of carbon sinks. <clears throat> and I think not a single carbon sink is the solution to climate change because we, you know, there's a debate around, can you make the carbon sink strong enough to just take all the carbon out of the atmosphere and we'll be fine. And the carbon sinks are not strong enough to do that. We release too much carbon into the atmosphere. Carbon sinks cannot keep up. Um, on top of that, climate change is actually threatening the carbon sinks itself. 
So the carbon, carbon sinks are likely to suffer from the impacts of climate change. We see, for example, that increasing temperatures, reduced snow cover period, increased dry seasons in the summer, and as a consequence, longer fire seasons can actually lead to threats to the forests in some parts of the world. Um, we have studied Siberian forest recently uh, to that respect, and we found actually that there are some areas where the forest fires are now happening so frequently and are so intense that the trees don't regenerate anymore. We don't know quite why that is, but I think um, <clears throat> it is a transition from forest to steppe vegetation that is most likely driven by a longer dry season in the summer. And Siberia is not a very hot place, but it can get sort of 20 degrees in the summer, 20 degrees Celsius, that is. Um, <clears throat> and that actually is perhaps too dry for too long a time for the little seedlings to establish themselves again, especially if the duration of the snow cover in the winter gets very short and there is less water coming down as meltwater from the mountains in the summer. Mm. We think there's probably a drought feedback with the lack of forest regeneration after fire. And so there's a bit of a concern, I guess, you know, are the carbon sinks going to be there forever or are some of them going to go? The permafrost is one example of that. <clears throat> so permafrost, um, entirely different topic perhaps, but quite relevant here <clears throat> because permafrost is melting, we know that. Um, permafrost is melting in Alaska, in Canada, in Siberia and in Scandinavia. Um, to a different degree perhaps, but we can observe that everywhere. And the previously frozen soil actually turns into slush. And that is threatening oil pipeline infrastructure. It leads to breakdown of roads, of buildings, um, ground subsidence and all of this. But it also leads to large methane emissions. And methane is a powerful greenhouse gas that's about 22 times stronger than carbon dioxide. And um, the permafrost issue is one of those things where you have a long-term carbon store that was a sink at some point, you know, that carbon comes from somewhere, <clears throat> but now it's being released and it bubbles up into the atmosphere. We can see that when we look at permafrost areas and you can see these bubbles coming out of the water, that is methane coming from the ground. So that methane was permanently frozen before climate change happened. Um, but now it's getting into the air and it's actually enhancing climate change. Yeah, I um, I was reading the UN re climate report, I think it's from two years ago, and there was a footnote in it that was quite alarming. And it was that some of the projections um, were made without factoring in permafrost. And permafrost is, just just so that anybody is unaware, it's permanent frozen ground. Am I, am I correct? Okay, so it's permanent frozen yes. ground. Um, that, you know, Siberia kind of going again to the Holocene and the start of the Holocene was um, it's been frozen and, and locked away, whatever is in there, you know, whether it be microorganisms or, you know, previous uh, dead uh, organisms um, or just kind of that decay getting locked in there. So then all of the, the gases and, and molecules that go along with that is kind of permanently stayed in place. And, um, in places like, I believe in the climate report that I was reading, is Siberia was a, a large, uh, uh, one of the largest areas of this permafrost. And it's also one of the largest areas mm. in which it is melting and it, it kind of exposing all this of which, um, you know, burning forest on top of it, I'm sure is just going to accelerate it even more. Um, and 
it, permafrost scares me quite a bit to be quite honest like the two mm-hmm. things that scare me the most of the the coming epoch is um permafrost accelerating the tipping point in the south uh, the south pole ice cap and and kind of that shelf falling apart and and the rush of global uh coastlines that would probably be receding quite quickly um mm-hmm. that that's what scares me the most um so so bringing that up is quite pointed um in and, and in Siberia as well, I did want to ask you about this. Um, so going along with your, your bringing up of coffee, actually, and how coffee, um, so like in South America, I believe there was a study that was done in Peru, I believe, um, in which they're finding that coffee farmers are having to grow higher and higher into the altitudes in order to maintain production. Um, and my, my question being in, in Siberia is part of the reason why the forests are burning and not coming back because of the fact that the the climate in which they have adapted for is no longer the climate in which they are in. So in other words, the, the trees and the, the forests that have kind of created this cycle of themselves in, you know, minus, you know, in lower than 20 degree weather is now changed um, as well mm-hmm. as the life cycle of what kind of uh, keeps them sustained. And is that part of what is happening is that the trees themselves are no longer adapted to the environment in which they are in. It is, um, and, and, and this, well, <laughs> let me start that again. To some degree, I think. It's a loaded question, sorry. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> to some degree, I, I think what you're saying is absolutely true, that the climate in Siberia is changing faster than the trees can adapt. I think that is the simple message, you know, because when we're thinking about climate change, the world on average has become a bit more than one degree warmer since industrialization started. But in Siberia, the regional temperatures have actually gone up more like by five to eight degrees, depending on where you are. Um, so that is a massive change. And what is happening there with the local microclimate actually is very concerning. Um, because if you think about how species adapt to change in the Earth's history, that is mainly happening through evolution. You know, species change on very long time scales, and Organisms may evolve a tolerance against some stress that they previously didn't tolerate if that stress exerts itself on the population for a long time. Um, so we see that with um, some of the plant varieties, for example, if there's a new plant disease coming, you know, those individuals that are particularly vulnerable to the disease die out and then the, the plants that are becoming resistant against it survive. Um, but that means actually you have to have hundreds of cycles of the population for that immunity to evolve, you know, and to adapt to the new environment. So what is happening in Siberia, I think, is that we see that climate change is happening on timescales that are much, much faster than species can adapt to. So the trees cannot actually change the way they protect themselves against heat stress and drought um, on the timescale on which this is happening. Yeah, and that's, and that's rather unfortunate. Um, and... I have one follow-up question on that, and then I want to stick on Siberia a little bit, but is there anything being done in order to, you know, I I know like, you know, genetic modification of organisms is quite a hot topic globally, especially here in the States. Um, But one of the things that I think is, is most interesting and beneficial to it is the speeding of, speeding up adaptations in organisms. Um, I know we do it most frequently in the States for crop yields and things like that and, and making instead of having to create successive lines of hybrid uh, species, you can just kind of jump, you know, several lines down the road. Is, is there any, anything being done in that regard as far as some of these more 
quote unquote natural worlds, you know, in forests to kind of try to help speed this along? Is is that an area that is being researched or? Mm. Um, well, in, in Russia, there are efforts to try and protect the forests from fire, um, but they clearly cannot get the problem under control. I mean, that's evident from what we see in the satellite pictures of how much forest is burning every year. Um, I think there are many different issues there. Siberia is a vast area. It's the biggest continuous forest area in the world. And I think wow. it is very difficult to actually keep that under control. Um, forest fires are often started by people sometimes inadvertently, from campfires, from hunters, from cigarette butts people throw away. Sometimes they are started deliberately by people setting fire to something, um, <clears throat> because if the forest is burned, it's um, then land that can be used in other ways. But I think the resources in Russia are such that they cannot actually keep control of everything. Mm. Um, so if you think about the forest area that one forest enterprise is looking after, it is very, very difficult to police that whole area. So I think they cannot really keep that problem under control through those measures. Um, <clears throat> perhaps there isn't enough awareness in the general population about the dangers of fire. In Europe, there are now very stringent fire control measures in place. Um, France and Spain and Italy, Portugal have extreme forest fires every other year or so. And in some of those countries, actually, whole areas are put under lockdown conditions in the fire season sometimes, you know, when all the, all the public ways, public hiking trails and things in the forests are being closed. And there is a, a fire guard, you know, people in uniform standing around the forest perimeter, not letting tourists in, for example, because they don't want people to go in there. And they say it's not safe, because if a fire started somewhere, you're in the middle of it, what do you do? Right. And... Perhaps that's the answer. You know, we have to just be very drastic about it and think about closing off some areas in the fire season when the risk is highest and saying, well, actually, it's not just about you might cause a fire. It's also about can you stay safe if you go in there? You know, what if somebody else starts a fire and you're in the middle of it? Yeah, that's uh, so I live in Southern California and my wife and I were once hiking here in a, a county forest and I had that exact thought. I was like, oh, my God there is so much kindling around us right now. This, I don't know when this is the last time this was called. Uh, I don't know the last time that this has been burned um, because there is brush that is higher than me. And I'm, you know, I'm two meters tall, right? I'm, I'm, I'm like six, six, three. So I'm fairly tall. Mm -hmm. And uh, if this is over my head, like, you know, this is, this is quite drastic. Um, needless mm -hmm. to say, we cut the hike quite short. I wasn't able to feel comfortable. Um, so I, I want, I didn't know that about Siberia being the largest contiguous forest, um, in, in the world. Um, you know, once again, I, I, permafrost keeps me up at night. Literally there are times that permafrost keeps me up at night. Um, and something that I think is, you know, both a benefit and, you know, a, a bit of a travesty from a lot of the fires that have happened in 2020, um, you know, starting with the, the billion, animals that were lost and, and millions of acres that were burned in Australia, right? And, and the sky literally growing, glowing red. And then just to see that same thing happen here from, you know, uh, San Francisco all the way up to Seattle. Um, and, and that continuing happening, you know, as we're recording this in Oregon, you know, near me and all of that kind of still burning. I think it's benefit that that is becoming more known to to, to mo more people, but I think that it's also kind of a travesty that Siberia isn't brought up more um, because Siberia is 
you know, like you said, like, you know, four degrees or five degrees to eight degrees Celsius, I think is what you said, the change there um, to, to, you know, my listeners in the States, that's, that's, that change is quite large in Celsius. It can go from as much as you having a comfortable day outside to being too hot to be able to function. Like that is, that is quite a big, big shift. Um, and to have that shift in an area that is normally so, so temperate and cool and cool is, is quite drastic. So, um, I, I, is, are the fires in Siberia, have they reached a massive scale on what we had seen in Australia or in California? Um, or are they starting to kind of pick up pace to get to that level? My, my, really, my question is, is, are the fires in, in Siberia as alarming as they were this year that we saw in, in more of the major sources? Um, and is it not being covered or is it just not quite there yet, but it's getting there? Mm. It was maybe not as catastrophic as the Australian fires that we saw this year, um, but the Siberian fires are also reaching a catastrophic scale. Um, and what we have seen is actually the intensity of the fires is increasing. The fire repeat cycle is actually accelerating, so you get fires more frequently. Um, fires have always been part of the boreal forest. You get them through lightning strikes naturally. And in the past, you know, we know this from charcoal records of trees, in the past, perhaps there was a fire every 150 or 200 years in Siberia in an average forest stand. So many of the trees actually survived those fires. But now you have fires maybe every five years or 10 years, sometimes even more frequently in some parts of the forest. And the more frequent the fires become, the less the trees are able to recover from the fires or survive a fire. When they become more intense, the trees are more likely to die from the fire. So I think we are going to see some drastic changes in the ecosystems there as a consequence of the changing fire regime, unless something's being done about it. But even then, I'm not quite sure how much we can do to stop the impacts of climate change on this. Um, because fires have always been part of the boreal biome, as I said, you know, lightning strikes are going to continue. Some climate scientists say that lightning um, strikes are becoming more frequent as part mm -hmm. of the thunderstorms that we see as part of climate and extreme weather. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the question is actually, what can we do to protect those forest areas? I always come back to the point that I started with, which is actually we have to reduce the amount of climate change we are likely to see um, by acting now and trying to move to a carbon neutral way of living. Um, that's the only way forward, I think. The whole debate about the climate emergency and all the protests that we see around the world now actually bring this home, you know, because we've known about the problem for many, many decades, but as a humanity at global scale, we have been unable to get ourselves together and act globally to try and reduce that catastrophe that we are facing. The longer we're waiting, I think the more pronounced the impacts will be. And we really want to live in a planet, on a planet that is a bit warmer perhaps, but not super hot, you know, so the internationally accepted threshold for dangerous climate change is about one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels. Currently, we are heading towards more like 2.7 degrees global warming, even with the Paris Agreement in place. Um, but so far, not all the pledges that countries have made have been realized. So we're probably heading more towards a 2.9 degree warming. Um, that brings us well into the zone of dangerous climate change that we cannot control anymore, where you get feedbacks like thawing permafrosts, releasing additional methane into the atmosphere, and um, catastrophic shifts that we can't even anticipate, like, you know, fire regimes are one of them. 
we were talking about shifting fire regimes as part of climate change some decades ago. But maybe as scientists, we were a bit too cautious because there was so much um, going on um, from climate skeptics for attacking climate scientists in public, you know, and trying to damage our reputations quite heavily. And I think as a consequence, climate scientists were maybe overly cautious in their predictions. So what we see as a consequence now is that in the latest climate reports, there were several instances where the international climate science community had to revise their forecasts and say, well, actually, we got it wrong. We were a bit too cautious and sea level rise is probably worse than expected. Um, and I think the same thing might be happening with the fire regimes. Maybe we've been overly cautious. What we see now with the fires happening, I think we need to reassess what we know about extreme climate events and how they change the fire risk. That's interesting. Um, I, I, in the episodes before this, I talked with about the California wildfires in, in particular. And one of the things that I'm seeing, in what, again, and drawing connections to with what you're saying is, um, you know, with less rainfall, the trees become more susceptible and, and weaker to, you know, more susceptible to disease. And disease means just dry dead wood um, or more susceptible to fires as they come through. And then that kind of just permeates the, the feedback loop and especially um, as what you said of, of forests actually um, helping kind of maintain the stability of a microclimate um, and, and you know personally like I I'm not a scientist but I, I do really dig um, media and I study the media a lot and I critique the media a lot and something that is um, particularly frustrating to me is permafrost and sea level rise because I think permafrost is something that should be more known um, because it is a drastic issue, and not just because it keeps me up at night, but because it is going to be a, a large driver that is going to be incredibly hard to maintain. I think, you know, it's it's going to be a giant game of whack-a-mole, but we don't have enough mallets, right? And uh, mm. uh, the other one being sea level rise, right? I, I think over 50% of the world's population lives within 100 miles of the coast, um, most of it in low-lying low areas. Um, so, you know, like just, just thinking of the outline of, of England or the outline of, of any major continent is going to be quite shifted um, from this, this rise. And it's kind of, once again, to, to call back to what we were saying in the beginning, the economic fallout of, of that is going to be a lot more expensive. You know, how, how expensive would it be to move Los Angeles in, in 10 miles than it would be to, to kind of make sure that it's, it doesn't have to get to that point in the first place? Yeah. And on a positive note, I think with the COVID-19 pandemic that we have experienced now and that we're still in the middle of when we are recording this, <laughs> um, what we have seen is actually that if the political will is there, we can take very extreme measures to try and address the catastrophe. And I think climate change needs to get the same level of seriousness in the political debate. You know, we have to really think about what we need to do and how we can achieve it to get climate change under control. It is at least as serious an issue as COVID-19 is in the longer term. At, yeah, at least, right? Um, and I, I want to be conscious of your time, but just to kind of spend two or three minutes on it, um, you did do some research recently on, on COVID-19 and kind of mapping some of the, the correlations between temperature and, and geographic and uh, results. And I was just curious if you would be able to kind of clue us in a little bit into what you found. Yeah, I mean, we, we did a, a rough correlation study globally where we looked at the correlations between temperature and air humidity and some other meteorological variables, wind speed and so on, with the incidence of COVID-19 in different parts of the world, different administrative districts. And what we found was that there were some correlations 
Um, but I think some of that, I would be cautious in over-interpreting those results. I think some of those correlations um, were caused by the situation at the time, because bear in mind, this started in March um, at a global scale, and we did the, the analysis over a couple of months' time in the first phase or the first wave of COVID. And in that wave, there was a very clear geographic pattern. Now, that correlated with climate, but I would be cautious in over-interpreting that. However, it was interesting to see that there was some correlation between some of the weather variables with the COVID-19 um, incidence data. Um, I think there's a lot more research going on on this now, and we have actually launched a research network between the UK and Ghana, hmm. um, where we are working with the Ghanaian Health Services and some local universities in Ghana uh, to try and look more at the environmental correlations uh, with the COVID outbreak in Ghana and how they got it under control or are getting it under control. Yeah, that was interesting. I, was, I found the wind speed most fascinating, uh, the correlation between higher wind speeds with, with lower contraction rates. That, mm. that was interesting. But perhaps they kind of learned yeah. some lessons. And that you could, you could sort of imagine how that might work, you know, because the wind speed actually might be blowing away any sort of virus contamination in the air that you might have through droplets and so on. Yeah, and I really, uh, really like turbulent flow. So fluid dynamics and turbulent flow is something that I find really interesting. Um, and I can see how that would make sense because these tiny little virus droplets, the more flow that is in a, in a certain given area, the more it would disperse and yeah. less likely to transfer. But because we haven't studied that as a causality, we cannot actually say that that was behind the observed correlation. So it could be an indirect correlation and it could mm -hmm. simply be if it's very windy, people don't like to mix outside and therefore they don't contaminate each other. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we don't know quite what's behind it, but I think it's an interesting pointer towards some further research why we observe these things, you know, because there might be some interesting characteristics of the pandemic we don't know about. Yeah, and, and I mean, going back to the satellite imagery on climate change that we talked with, right, you know, as the tools of science kind of get up to the challenge that they're facing, um, the more the correlations and understanding of the effects and solutions and trade-offs kind of come into play. So, so perhaps, you know, to, to make a bit of a, a leap here, maybe the best things that we could do with understanding COVID is to try to understand how we got here with climate and, and learn some of those lessons and adapt those more broadly. Yeah. Yes. And of course, we are now in the middle of a second wave um, in the UK and in many other countries. And therefore, we have to see really how the second wave is different or similar to the first wave. Right. And humans, as you said, maybe they don't like congregating in windy areas or uh, perhaps being in, in more colder environments or just generally mm -hmm. over it might change the, the behaviors and kind of how the, the movement of the virus goes. Um, all very fascinating. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to press pause in a second, but thank you very much just to kind of end the recording. I really appreciate your time and this was incredibly illuminating for me. And, and if there's anything else you want to say before I, I stop the recording, you know, please let me know. And I, once again, thank you for your time. Yeah, no, I'd just like to thank you for the discussion. It's been really interesting talking to you. So thank you for your time and I look forward to seeing it published. Thank you.